Part One, Yesterday, Beginnings. One, way back when. It's a typical Friday evening in downtown America. A group of youthful practitioners, mostly women, kitted out in fashionable sportswear and carrying plastic water bottles, arrives at a large, well-lit gym. Tanned and toned, they have come to relax after a hard day at the office, tighten up their abs and flabs, reduce their blood pressure and cholesterol. During the session, there is a lot of talk of anatomical details amidst a pervasive atmosphere of no pain, no gain. The stretching and relaxing may involve blocks, ropes, and other appliances. But there is a determined energy exerted in most of the postures. Everything takes place in front of the wall-to-wall mirrors, and the ethos is one of goal-directed accomplishment. Everyone is getting somewhere, burning off fat and sweating out stress, improving themselves. At the end of the session, recharged and clear-headed, people chat while quickly changing back into street gear. Some are advocating the benefits of the latest detox programs and high-energy diets, while almost all are checking their phones and consulting their upcoming schedules. Not far away, on the other side of town, another group is meeting. Its members are older than the gym goers, but again, almost exclusively female. Here, the lighting is dimmer. Sitar music is playing softly in the background. And the scent of sandalwood wafts from an incense stick smouldering in front of an image of the dancing Shiva. The session, led by a Western teacher with an Indian name, who was just back from a three-month stay at an ashram in Rishikesh, begins with mispronounced chanting from a sacred Hindu text, followed by some mantras that the group repeats after her. Sanskrit terminology is used to describe the postures, which are performed slowly and gently. The session is brought to a gentle close with a guided meditation, and then, after some relaxed socializing and prolonged hugging, people drift away into their various weekends. The understanding of yoga typified by the first group will be dealt with later in this book. But for the moment, let us focus on the second. As do millions of others, its members would see their practice as being in some way connected to the nourishing wellspring of Indian wisdom. However vaguely the connection may be articulated, practitioners and teachers take for granted that this yoga is the subcontinent's practical and perennial spiritual gift to the rest of the world. One of the most popular English translations of Patanjali's classic Yoga Sutra is "How to Know God," a poetic collaboration between the California-based Indian guru Swami Prabhavananda and the English writer Christopher Isherwood. First published in 1953, this version is still the Vedanta Press best-selling book. And has remained so respected over the years that, until very recently, the official governing body of yoga in the UK, the British Wheel of Yoga, chose it as the recommended text for its teacher training courses. 
In the opening paragraph of their introduction, the authors tell us, The yoga doctrine may be said to have been handed down from prehistoric times. Such an impressive pedigree might perhaps be proved one day, but in fact there is currently no hard evidence to support such a claim, and certainly not as regards body yoga. Much water has flowed under the scholastic bridge in the almost 70 years since this translation was first published, and such broad statements rarely go unchallenged today. Indeed, as we shall see, a great deal of what is practiced as yoga in the 21st century actually has very little in common with what we now know of ancient India, in terms of both its socio-cultural norms and its spiritual aims. Talking of timescales, it is often said on the yoga circuit that the practice dates from 5,000 years ago. Now, as anyone familiar with India or Indians will know, when the tag 5,000 years pops up in discussions on culture, it is not a precise figure, but shorthand for an awfully long time ago, exactly how long no one really knows, and anyway, it doesn't matter, because the subject at hand is a timeless truth. Such an easy-going attitude is in part quite understandable, as early Indian history is notoriously vague on exact chronology, and there are many lengthy periods when we know virtually nothing about what was going on in the subcontinent. Such inexactitude may well frustrate intellectuals, and their frustration is compounded by the fact that history and myth, to use the Western distinction, have always blended seamlessly into one another in India. One word in Sanskrit, itihasa, thus it happened, covers both history and myth, thus conflating what, in Western eyes at least, is objectively true with what is merely fanciful imagination. From the traditional Indian point of view, it is the exemplary value of events rather than the details of their chronological order that is important. From this perspective, the purpose of historical record is to educate and inspire people, both as individuals and as members of society. Current reassessment of history as a series of partial narratives rather than an objective record has not yet brought us to the traditional Indian view that the events of the Mahabharata are no less historically real than the subcontinent's struggle for independence from the British Raj, though plenty of influential people in New Delhi are making this very claim. Given this, any attempt to locate the precise genesis of yoga, or accurately trace its early historical trajectory, is doomed to failure. In India, reliable records are often just not there, and we have only mythistory in their place. The paucity of written evidence is only partly because widespread literacy is a very recent phenomenon. In our time, literacy is seen as the yardstick of civilization, so it is easy to forget that our ancient forebears did not share the respect we automatically grant the ability to read and write. Sacred knowledge was too precious to commit to writing, 
as written records are always susceptible to misappropriation and misinterpretation, and unschooled minds can all too easily destroy the purity of a teaching they do not fully comprehend. This explains the fact that when the written medium did first emerge in early cultures, such as Sumer and ancient China, it was used only to record commercial transactions, such as the payment of taxes, accumulation of debts, and the ownership of property, but never to transmit philosophical or sacred knowledge. In fact, writing first arrived on the scene at just the same time and place, Sumer, in around 3000 BC, as history's first known money, the currency of Bali, appeared. Spiritual knowledge in India was always an oral tradition, passed on by word of mouth and made fast by personal praxis. Even the priestly custodians of sacred knowledge and ritual were not necessarily able to read or write, for what ensured the faultless transmission of their teachings was direct personal contact, mind to mind, heart to heart, hand to hand. Once it appeared on the Indian scene as a science of transformation, yoga was always a living body of practice, transmitted in the context of the guru-disciple relationship and secured by the close monitoring of individual progress. This importance of a closed tradition also accounts for the exclusivity of the Brahman priestly caste throughout India's history. However much it may pain moderns, in traditional societies, important knowledge, and religion was the most important kind of knowledge, was always a highly specialized affair and not a democratic right. Its purity was maintained through a functional hierarchy that was justified as being a microcosm of the divine order. This universal holism is known in Vedic India as Ritta, in later Hindu thought as Dharma, and in the Christian West as the great chain of being first articulated by Plato. Such a view is the exact opposite of the postmodern relativism taught in our citadels of learning today, which sees hierarchy as an exploitative and largely patriarchal social construct to monopolize power, rather than enjoying such an elevated provenance. Of course, the ancients were swayed as much by mundane considerations as arcane theology. Implacable monsoon rains and floods, voracious ants and destructive military conflicts, all threatened written records, whether these were made of bark, palm leaf, or, from about the 8th century onwards, paper. Word-of-mouth accuracy was assured by the cultivation of an extraordinarily capacious memory, nurtured through a process of rote learning and continuous repetition, often synchronized with bodily movements that helped make it fast. In this way, the student metabolized knowledge rather than merely accumulated it, and his expertise became part of his intrinsic identity. Literacy, which depends on external resources, tends to destroy our innate retentive faculty. As they say in India, the knowledge that is in the book stays in the book. 
The prodigious feats of recall we know from classical orators in the West, and which can still, just, be found in India among professional balladeers and travelling bards, are well-nigh inconceivable to us highly literate yet often attention-deficient moderns. The five-thousand-years trope is an old romantic longing, projected onto an India imagined as a culture of timeless wisdom accumulated by saints and scholars over the millennia. It was already observable in some travellers' accounts in classical times. Around 320 BC, the Greek ambassador Megasthenes described India as this mystical and magical land, while almost 300 years later, the Pythagorean sage Apollonius of Tiana witnessed Brahmins who worshipped their god by levitating two cubits in the air. The idea entered squarely into scholarly discourse in the late 18th century Enlightenment. The reservoir of this wisdom is often believed to lie in Vedic culture and its energetic child Hinduism, but the latter is itself a problematic concept. Hinduism is a term that was coined by British missionaries, officials, and, following them, scholars, during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Hindu, a much older term, was originally used as a geographic or ethnic description of those people living around the river Indus. Only later was it used as an umbrella adjective, under which was lumped together the vast array of religious beliefs and practices found all over the subcontinent. Indians themselves did not naturally use the term. From the early 19th century onwards, we hear increasingly the epithet Sanatana Dharma, the unchanging law, being used by the Orthodox to distinguish their old-time religion from what was then being taught by the various reform movements influenced by missionary Christianity. Today, Sanatana Dharma is often used by those who dislike the imported Hinduism and see their inherited wisdom of living as being more than just one among the many other world religions. The word orthodox is also important for us here, as several streams of Indic religious experience outside the fold of Vedic Hindu orthodoxy, most notably Jainism and then Buddhism, have always practiced some form of yoga. In fact, a good few of our earliest records of it come from these heterodox sources. With all these caveats in mind, let us look at what we do know about the earliest strata of Indian civilization and see what origins, if any, we can find there for what is now being practiced so assiduously in the gyms, village halls and hospitals of the 21st century. The Indus Valley Civilization The Indus Valley Civilization is the earliest evidence we have of an advanced and well-organized culture on Indian soil. Roughly contemporary with Middle Kingdom China and ancient Mesopotamia, the IVC's vast and well-organized urban culture extended over at least 500 separate settlements in a 1,000-mile arc 
stretching from southern Pakistan eastwards across to modern Delhi and south to Mumbai. Retrieved remains from these early times in the subcontinent are very thin on, or even under, the ground, but one artifact from this period was for many years advanced as early evidence of yoga, and it is still sometimes offered today as proof that postural practice goes back to the very beginnings. Excavated at one of the principal cities of the civilization, Mohendro Daharo, now in Pakistan, this is a small steatite seal measuring barely two inches square. It depicts an impressive seated figure that looks like a deity or a king, or perhaps a high priest of some sort, sitting with legs crossed in what many have taken to be the Mula Bandhasana, a posture later to be much favoured by tantric yogis. Our figure sports an erect phallus and is seated on a low couch that resembles those still used for meditation in India today. He also wears a sizable headdress with protruding horns and is surrounded by wild animals, elephant, tiger, rhinoceros and bull, while in front of him sits what looks like a pair of deer. All these details led Sir John Marshall, the British archaeologist who excavated the site in the early 1930s, to consider the figure as the prototype of the later Hindu god Shiva. One of Shiva's many forms is as Mahayogi, the great yogi, the archetypal adept and practitioner of austerities, while another is as Dakshinamurti, he who faces south, i.e. the deity who sits in the high northern Himalaya, looking down onto the subcontinent to impart sacred knowledge and protect those who follow it. Both these could be suggested by the figure's posture and evident authority. Another of Shiva's forms is as Pashupati, lord of the creatures, which fits with the entourage of animals. The symbolism could also be stretched to fit yoga, as in later Shaivite teaching, the word Pashu, which literally means the bound animal, designates the typical unregenerate human being who stands in need of yogic transformation. For us worldly Pashus, lost in bestial ignorance, Shiva, as lord of yogic wisdom, is our first resort and final liberator. He has other epithets too, conqueror of death, Marityum Jaya, and giver of joy, Shankara, attributes that would later be ascribed to the accomplished yogi himself. Marshall's theory that the seal's little figure was a proto-Shiva, advocating yoga, was accepted uncritically for over half a century, but modern scholars have rejected it some preferring to see the figure as a sort of a shaman rather than an original practitioner of postural yoga. At the dawn of civilization, shamanic seers were revered individuals whose ability to move into exceptional states of mind rendered them essential to the group as its spiritual antennae, yet simultaneously often ineffective in terms of day-to-day -day social function for theirs was a higher calling than mundane work. The later yogis would also occupy this ambivalent status. 
The shaman interpretation does seem to fit the sparse facts better. The IVC figure is clearly wearing the horns of some tutelary animal deity, which could align him with the worldwide brotherhood of visionaries, who derive their magical power from communing with the spirits of totemic animals. The buffalo of the American plains, the reindeer of the northern tundra, the yak and horse of the Mongolian steppes, all these were sacred to animistic tribes and all had their body parts used as part of the shaman's regalia, especially his headdress. Admittedly, shamanism is preeminently the religion of nomadic people and the IVC was a settled culture which built for permanence. That said, the origin of the IVC remains unknown. Interestingly, the detail of this seal is not unique to India. A strikingly similar figure, sitting cross-legged on the ground, wearing some sort of antlers and surrounded by animals, is depicted on the Gundastrup cauldron, a richly decorated silver vessel dating from between 200 BC and AD 300 that was found in 1891 in a peat bog in Denmark which is a long way from the Indus Valley. While we just don't know enough about the interconnectedness of ancient civilizations to say anything definite about this remarkable likeness, it does seem to favor the shaman-priest theory and cast further doubt on any connection with a subcontinental shiver. And then there is the yogic pose, the figure's posture clearly denotes a degree of authority, if not majesty, but sitting cross-legged has always been the natural way for Indians to sit, as it still is for many millions of non-Europeans. Perhaps more to the point, you don't usually do arsoners wearing a large horned headdress, or, if it comes to it, with a full erection. In addition, if yoga was such an important part of this early stage of Indian religious life, as some claim, would there not have been other IVC seals depicting other asanas, different postures? So, while our lordly figure certainly enjoyed some totemic status, little more can be said about him conclusively. Nor does the script imprinted on the seal help us here. Tantalizingly, all IVC writing remains undeciphered to this day. However, archaeology continues to shed more light on this question, albeit with painstaking slowness. A recent find at an IVC site at Balatal in Rajasthan revealed a skeleton dating back perhaps 2,700 years. The figure is sitting in the Samadhi position, cross-legged, hands resting on his knees with thumb and index fingers touching, in the yogic Janana Mudra, symbolizing spiritual insight. This is the posture that many yogis adopt for meditation, and it is also assumed at the time of their burial, which has sometimes been known to take place while they are still alive. The Vedic Era This era, the next layer of early Indian history to be unpeeled in our search for the origins of yoga, is named after the Vedas, 
The scriptures that form the ever-erect backbone of orthodox Hinduism. There are four of these collections of hymns, Rig Veda, the knowledge of the divine word, Sama Veda, the knowledge of the sacred songs, Yajur Veda, the knowledge of the sacrificial formulae, and Aturva Veda, the knowledge of the laws of nature. Appended to these works is a huge corpus of subsidiary texts known collectively as Upavedas and Vedangas. Taken together, this literature covers many different aspects of life in great detail. Religion, sacred ritual, health and medicine, architecture, astrology, warfare, the arts. Nowhere in it, however, can there be found any specific mention of body yoga. The central religious rite of the Vedic people was the fire sacrifice, yagna a ritual performed by skilled priests with the purpose of soliciting the support of higher beings, devatas, literally, the shining ones, that exist in the subtle strata of creation, operating behind the scenes of daily life and controlling its outcomes. Yagnyas were usually performed for communal rather than individual benefit, with the king often acting as the patron of the ceremony and representative of his people. One type of yagna, celebrated particularly in the ninth book, Mandala, of the Rig Veda, involved the ritual preparation and ingestion of Soma, a hallucinogenic plant that bestowed visions of the luminous subtle realms where the deities dwell and that transported the priest into communication with these discarnate energies. Here at the dawn of its recorded history, Indic civilization exhibits the instinct for ecstasy that has remained such an important feature of its variegated cultures ever since. Despite many theories over the years, Soma has not yet been conclusively identified. Some scholars have speculated that it was ephedra or a type of magic mushroom. Pressed out, the etymological meaning of the word soma, filtered and mixed with cow's milk and other liquids, the distilled soma was poured into the sacred fire as an offering to the gods and also drunk by the sacrificial priests. It was credited with divine potency and the ability to remove sin and yield good health, longevity, and the experience of immortality, as well as with bestowing paranormal powers. Significantly, all these boons would later be attributed to the practice of yoga. When the word yoga is used in these early texts, it appears to be with a meaning far removed from postural or even meditational exercise. The term is most often employed in the Rig Veda in the contexts of nomadism, warfare and death, and there are several descriptions of the dying warrior being hitched to his chariot, Yoga Yukta, ascending to the celestial realms of the sun. Interpretation of such metaphors is fraught with difficulty, as the succinct and synoptic nature of the Sanskrit language means images are typically packed with layers of meaning not immediately visible to the modern eye. 
This particular metaphor seems to bring together a military image with the common idea of the journey taken by the pious sacrificer, who, through the sacrifice performed on his behalf by the Brahmin priests, rises to the heavenly world of the gods. The same image is also used as a wonderfully evocative description of leaving the body at the time of death, with the dying person riding on an immaterial and self-fashioned chariot, loaded up with the harvest of his earthly deeds to present as his offering to Yama, the lord of death. This sky journey could also be a metaphor for the inward ascent of contemplation, of course, when the mind dies to the outside world and limited self, travels to distant psychic realms, and is then reborn with fresh vitality and insight. All in all, the meaning of such esoteric passages remains unclear. Most academics are unwilling to go out on a limb of speculation, as they have reputations to preserve and livelihoods to earn. The Mahabharata In this voluminous scripture, whose 200,000 verses took many centuries to finalize, we find the term yoga mentioned no fewer than 900 times. Some of these citations refer to yoga in a philosophical sense and rate it highly. There is no wisdom like Samkhya, no power like yoga. Others continue the association of yoga with the Vedic warrior and his journey to the sun. In that portion of the Mahabharata, known as the Bhagavad Gita, the most popular of all Hindu scriptures, Lord Krishna, the Supreme Personality of the Godhead, is very clear that the most glorious fate of a Kshatriya warrior is to die in battle. Such a self-sacrifice is his dharmic path to the celestial realms of the gods, offering him what Krishna calls an open door to heaven. Those undergoing this noble demise are also described by the word yoga-yukta as they ascend to heaven. Significantly, however, the Mahabharata also uses the word yoga when describing arduous physical penances and austerities performed by holy men. In this context, there are many references to another, more localized journey that takes place when the yogi leaves his own body and enters that of another. This skill of taking possession of another person, Parakaya Pravesh, is mentioned by Patanjali, and is found later in standard lists of the supernormal powers, siddhis, attained by the proficient yogi. Even Adi Shankara, the 8th century ultra-orthodox master of the doctrine of Advaita Vedanta, is accredited with this ability in all the popular accounts of his life. Indeed, it secured his victory in the crucial debate with a champion of Vedic ritual, that established the superiority of his path of mind-yoga over the way of textual knowledge and priestly expertise. These accounts are legendary hagiographies, mythistory par excellence, but nonetheless they show that arcane yogic skills were very much part of the contemporary zeitgeist.
In time, too, the sacrificial soma of Vedic ritual would be internalized and understood as a subtle physical substance generated in the yogi's body by his practice, especially by his sexual continence, and the theme of mystical or astral ascent beyond the confines of the mortal body would become a metaphor for the yogic path of meditation that leads to the celestial self. Yet the ritual use of hallucinogens would continue to be important. Perhaps 1,500 years later than the Vedic texts, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, a relatively sober work, mentions herbs, aushadi, as one of the four means to promote paranormal powers in the yogi. Wandering Holy Men In all the early texts, the yogis that are mentioned are not the clean-living, health-conscious and physically-toned practitioners we would recognize by that word today. The holy itinerants who practiced yoga, although generally known as sadhus, good men, seem to have been raggle-taggle gypsies who wandered the earth freely, unshackled by convention and in pursuit of spiritual ecstasy, which they would get wherever they could find it. Such wild sadhu groups, numbering millions of adherents, are still very much part of the richly variegated religio-social scene in India, though these days their preferred stimulant is hashish, or its decoction, bahang, rather than the soma of Vedic times. They cast their influence over the latest wave of travellers seeking eternal India, the beats and hippies who made the overland trek to India in the 60s and 70s, many of whom, when they returned home, would be among the early adopters of postural yoga in the West. Thanks to photographic studies and the globalized footage of the regular Kumbha Mela festival, where the sadhus gather in huge crowds, these wild-looking holy men are now familiar figures. Wandering sadhus are also mentioned in Vedic texts, where they are described as long-haired ascetics, keshins, who practice spiritual techniques and gain states of ecstasy. They seem to have formed groups that were outside conventional society and quite separate from the orthodox ritual priests who performed fire sacrifices for the king and the collective good. The Atarva Veda, which is somewhat later than the other three major compilations, contains many descriptions of one particular brotherhood it calls the Vratyas, those who have taken the vow. This suggests membership of an initiatory brotherhood, but also alludes to one of their epithets, the honeybees, or Madhuvrata, meaning those whose vow is to sweetness, because they roamed here and there in search of the nectar of bliss. As such, these sapient foragers, finely attuned to the rhythms of nature and their own bodies, constituted an evolutionary throwback to those unfettered times before mankind became tied to the fields he planted and trapped in the cities he built. Travelling the northern areas of the subcontinent, especially the land to the east of modern Punjab, the Vratyas used carts drawn by horse and mule, 
and often moved in groups of thirty-three that were organized into a stratified, almost military social order. They must have been a colorful crew, distinguished by black turbans worn in a rakish manner over long matted hair, a white blanket thrown across the shoulders with rounded silver earrings, and heavy necklaces of jewels and beads. Their lower garments were deerskins, and they carried weapons, lance, bow, and pointed goad, as many of today's wandering sardus still do. Talented composers and singers, the Vratyas found they could sing a lot better, and probably hold the notes longer, if they practiced what they called pranayama, a type of breath control. While some enjoyed sex with the women who accompanied the group, others were continent, employing their abstinence to generate spiritual energy. This is a strategy that, as we shall see in Chapter 5, was to play a central role in medieval Hatha Yoga and remain a concern of all subsequent yogic praxis. The Vratyas, so we are told, harnessed their minds and harnessed their visionary insights to see the steady light they find within the hidden place of the heart when they have sung their mantras which they fashion in their heart. This inner effulgence is beyond thought, being swifter than the mind. My ears, my eyes speed after this light lodged here within my heart. The Vedic poets frequently link the ecstatic individual to the wider cosmos by equating his inner light with the sun. In the fourth degree of prayer, the sage found the sun till then immersed in darkness, or by personifying this inner effulgence as Agni, the god of light and the flame of the sacrificial fire. To join with the cosmic intelligence is not a matter of intellectual learning or ritual skill, but of a heartfelt receptivity. The lordly herdsman of the whole universe, the enlightened one, has entered into me, the simple one. Devotion, which would play such a role in medieval yoga, is also prefigured in such lines as My songs of praise High aspiring speed forth as messengers to Indra, uttered by my spirit to touch his heart. And, may this song of praise be foremost in touching thy heart in blessedness. The intoxicating sense of immortality, which would become a key concern of yoga, was also sought by these early seers, who tell us, I have known this mighty celestial man, refulgent as the sun beyond the darkness. Only by knowing him does one overcome death. No other way is there to go. And, in one passage, Desireless, wise, immortal, self-existent, contented with the essence, lacking nothing is he. One fears not death who has known him, the self. Artman, serene, ageless, ever youthful. In the context of these proto-yogis, we also learn of an undying and omnipresent consciousness. The deathless flame in living beings without which nothing whatever can be done, 
that immortal essence whereby all is comprehended, that which is, and that which will be hereafter. These and similar refrains clearly prefigure teachings that are found perhaps a thousand years later in the Upanishads, and, from them in turn, not only the medieval texts, but yogic philosophy up until today. So much for early mind yoga. But to return to our search for the origins of the postural sort, the important point here is that the route to these coveted states of luminous introversion was clearly through ritual and meditation, probably aided by heady draughts of soma or its equivalent, rather than hours spent assiduously on the exercise mat. Nowhere among these earliest and varied uses of the term yoga do we find reference to the asanas taught today, nor even anything that can be recognized as the clear prototype of modern posture work. So to judge from the available evidence, the assumption often made by body yoga enthusiasts that their routines were from the very beginning a central pillar of ancient Indian culture just doesn't stand up.